My junior and senior year of high school, I played golf for the golf Garden Spot uh, varsity golf team. I, I wasn't very good. I'm still not very good. Uh, but I, I did have a, a few moments of partial greatness on the course. Actually, I, I would have been a PGA pro if, uh, if I had technique, power, and control of the ball and determination. So apparently you need those things to be good, and I don't have them, therefore I never made it. Well, the goods on my mom's side uh, of the family used to hold a family golf tournament every year at our uh, camping outing, the yearly camping outing. And one summer, many years ago, I was golfing with my family. I was on fire. Uh, not literally. I was playing great golf. I was, I was controlled. I was in the zone. I was hitting greens. I was making pars. I was on pace to shoot my best golf round ever here at this family outing. And you know what? I did shoot my best golf round that day. My brother was there to witness it. And uh, I putted. I putted the ball in the cup on the last hole, and you know how I responded to shooting my best golf game ever. I kid you not, I kicked my golf bag so hard, it flew up in the air. It didn't land softly either. I I was furious, absolutely furious. I picked up my bag, marched in my dad's car, got in, punched the dashboard, and it left a ding in my dad's uh, car that never went away. Uh, I was very angry after playing my greatest round of golf ever. Now, you can learn two things from this. One, your pastor is really messed up. I have some serious sin issues to deal with in my heart. And number two, golf is a beautifully complicated and challenging game that apparently brings out the best in people. So how could I get angry after playing my best round of golf ever? Well, because I'm a messed up sinner, but there's more to the story that you need to know. I always had the dream of shooting in the 70s. And I get to the last hole, and it was highly probable that I would shoot in the 70s after that hole. I muffed the last hole. Shot 80 on the nose. So the bag went flying. Uh, But, you know, when, when you're serious about this, that's no excuse. It's no excuse because I should have rejoiced at the grace that God had given me that day to play to play and enjoy a great round of golf like that. Instead, I ignored God's word to rejoice always. Uh, give thanks in all circumstances, even when you shoot 80 on the nose. You see, sometimes in life we lose perspective. We get mad. Even though God is gracious to us, we get mad at him. I would argue that all sinful anger is ultimately anger directed at God which grows best in the soil of our selfishness, our pride, our self-righteousness. At the end of Jonah 3, all of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and God relented, and you would expect Jonah to be happy about this. You would expect Jonah to be really happy about this. He was a huge success. His preaching sparked arguably the greatest spiritual awakening in history. Chapter 4 should begin with Jonah's joy and gratitude to God. But listen to Jonah 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Why would Jonah be so angry? 
God relented. That's Jonah 3, verse 10. What preacher in his right mind gets really angry when God uses his preaching to bring widespread spiritual awakening to a great city? What, what evangelist shares the gospel and is infuriated when his listeners actually repent and believe and do what he's calling them to do? This book shows the callousness of the, of the, of the human heart. The callousness of the human heart. But we can't lose sight of the big point of Jonah because chapter 4 solidifies the big point. God is sovereign over everything. Gracious and kind to pursue and save stubborn people. And God uses his sinful but redeemed people to reach the nations for his glory and their greatest joy in him. Haven't we seen that play out throughout Jonah? Chapter 4 is no exception, so we're going to jump back to, to Jonah's anger. Sometimes God's sovereign grace and kindness make us angry. Jonah was exceedingly angry, infuriated, hot under the collar because God relented. Verse 2 explains this. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah hated the Ninevites and wanted every man, every woman, every child, even the cattle, to be destroyed. Jonah would gladly receive grace, but for Nineveh, he wanted justice. He apparently thought he deserved God's grace more than Nineveh. He ran from the presence of the Lord because he suspected that God might be merciful to Nineveh, which was absolutely unthinkable for him. He knew the heart of God. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in steadfast love, and God is relenting from disaster. God's heart is compassionate. In Exodus 34, God descended in a cloud to stand right there on Mount Sinai with Moses. This is what God said to Moses in verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God has been that way forever. He is just. He will condemn the guilty, yet he is also compassionate. Years before Jonah, King David wrote these song lyrics, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Psalm 86, verse 15. God loves to relent. But that angered Jonah, even though God had been gracious to him, big time gracious to him. Listen to what Jonah said to God in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So God's great compassion angered Jonah 
so much that he wanted God to kill him rather than to stand there and to see Nineveh receive God's mercy. He was ticked. And that is hardcore hatred. That's hardcore anger in the human heart. He wasn't letting his his hatred, his self-righteousness, his anger go. Jonah couldn't seem to take the truth that salvation belongs to the Lord and to apply that to Nineveh. He was the one that said that. Jonah had significant issues, but he had also made slight spiritual progress. And that might strike you like, where's the spiritual progress? Well, in Jonah 4 verse 2, in his unrighteous anger, he was praying to God. Whereas earlier in Jonah 1 verse 3, he wasn't praying to God, he was running from God. So sometimes spiritual steps are just baby steps. They're like little bit ahead. Now, right now, I want you to dig deeply down into your hearts. Does the sovereign grace and kindness of God make you angry? Maybe you don't want God to save certain people in the world. Maybe you hesitate to share the gospel with those far from God, because you don't care if they perish in their sin. Maybe you have hate in your heart. Maybe racism. Maybe you have a hard time celebrating God's compassion in other people's lives. Maybe you think you're better than other people. What is it for you when you study your heart? What is it for you? These are difficult. They're soul-searching questions. They they get down to the nitty-gritty of, okay, maybe I do get mad at God's grace and his compassion for other people. But they're good questions. You've got to dig down into your heart. And when you get down there and you see the grossness of your heart, God can, can help you to grow in that, to have his heart. But you know, sometimes we choose to stay miserable and angry in our sin instead of becoming joyful and thankful in God's sovereign grace. The key to being a joyful and thankful person is delighting in the character, nature, and work of God. That's the key to being happy in life. Sovereign grace excites gladness and gratitude. Jonah was overcome by anger because Sovereign grace was not precious to him. It was not a treasure, so much so that he wanted God to kill him. Why? Though he knew the excellent character of God, knew the excellent nature of God, knew the excellent work of God, he wasn't delighting in God. In seeing God work, it wasn't precious to him. He wanted it his way, not God's way. And because he wanted it that way, he was miserable. The character, nature, and work of God should have endeared God to Jonah but it just made him mad. And that's not a good, a good spot to be. God rebuked him in verse four. Take a look. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? In other words, is your anger justified, Jonah? Are you right to feel this way about my sovereign grace? Which implies, Jonah, your heart is off. You're not thinking right Watch how Jonah responded, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. 
Jonah could have stayed and celebrated God's mercy and grace with the Ninevites. He could have stayed. He could have taught them he was God's prophet. Think of all that he could have taught them about God. But he up and left. He strutted out of the city and he made some shanty up to the east of the city. He was acting like a big baby. And what was going on inside of him? Look at the phrase again in verse 5. Till he should see what would become of the city. I think that Jonah was hoping that Nineveh's repentance would prove to be insincere and that there was still time for God to destroy the city. Jonah wanted justice. God wanted grace. Dr. Richard Phillips has a helpful word for us. He wrote this. We need to realize that the grace of God is not an offense to our sense of justice but rather the only hope of our our own salvation. At all times, we will celebrate mercy and grace since by them we gained our own forgiveness. Instead of drawing back from God in perplexity, we should learn to draw near to God for refuge. God's sovereign grace is meant to save and delight us, not frustrate and perplex us. Justice has been done In the cross or justice will be done in eternal hell. So every display of divine grace is reason to draw nearer to God in cheerful adoration, in cheerful celebration of his amazing grace. And we can learn this. We can learn to rejoice and give thanks in God's sovereign grace whenever it is given, by reflecting on Scripture and the grace that God has given us and by walking by the Spirit in obedience to the Scripture. Don't lose sight of what God has done for you. Don't lose sight of that. Rejoice that you belong to God. Rejoice at the promises of God for you. Rejoice of what God's sovereign grace has produced in you. And then rejoice when others receive his sovereign grace because you have tasted and you know how good his grace is. The last few verses of Jonah present a strong case for the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty is a familiar word to us. But do you know what it means to say that God is sovereign over everything? Do you know what that means? Here's here's how Theopedia.com defines God's sovereignty. I think this is pretty good. The sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that all things, all things are under God's rule and control and that nothing happens without his direction or permission. God works not just some things, but all things according to the counsel of his own will. His purposes are all-inclusive and never thwarted. Nothing takes him by surprise. The sovereignty of God is not merely that God has the power and right to govern all things, but that he does so always and without exception. Have we not seen that in the book of Jonah at every last turn? Now, here's what I think you're going to see in these ending verses. God is sovereign over our pleasure and our pain, and he he gives us grace and kindness through both. 
do you believe that God is sovereignly working in your pleasure and your pain? Do you believe that? Now, some people think that it gets God off the hook to say he doesn't ordain or he doesn't decree pain and suffering and that he can't really do anything about it. He can't stop it. It, it, hap- it happened outside of his control. And let me just say that is harmful theology. That is not biblical. That will harm you in a ton of different ways. God doesn't watch our pain and suffering from a distance and sit there wringing his hands thinking, boy, I wish I could do something right now, but my hands are tied. I can't intervene here. That's not the God we serve. God is sovereign in and God is sovereign through pain and suffering. He's working in both. Now, Follow the logic here. If pain and suffering are outside of God's control, if pain and suffering act independently of God's purpose and plan, then pain and suffering can derail the purpose and plan of God and are ultimately sovereign over Him. Either God can't stop it or God chooses not to stop it because He has a divine purpose and plan for it. Isn't that Ephesians 1.11? Isn't that Romans 8.28? God does work all things according to the counsel of his will. God does work all things for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God works in our sickness to show the sovereignty of his healing. God works in our failure to show the sovereignty of his success. God works in our loss to show the sovereignty of his provision. I want you to see God's sovereignty in Jonah 4. Yet again, his sovereignty at, on display. The Hebrew word manah shows up three times uh, in chapter 4, and it means to appoint or to assign or to destine. God appoints certain things to happen, and they happen. Now, what did God appoint? Look at verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed, assigned, destined a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. In the Assyrian heat, you have God sovereignly causing this plant to grow up and to give Jonah shade. Why? To save Jonah from his discomfort. I mean, it was hot. And Jonah was thankful for that plant. Jonah was relieved and glad because God sovereignly gave him pleasure through the plant. God creates plants, commands plants, tells plants where to grow. God rules all agriculture. No farmer labored for that plant. God simply appointed it to be to give relief to Jonah. God is completely sovereign over the pleasure that Jonah experienced from that plant. Now look at verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed, assigned, destined a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. That's hot. That sounds hot. So Jonah slept in this little shanty that he had built to the east of the city. The sun began to rise over Nineveh the next morning, and God sovereignly appointed a worm to kill the plant, which gave shade to Jonah the day before. So long, comfort. 
So long coolness, the worm killed the plant, but you'll see God's sovereignty working in and through the worm and the plant. Am I speaking truth here? God creates worms, commands worms, tells worms where to go. God rules the animal kingdom. It was God's sovereign will for that worm to kill that plant and to take pleasure from Jonah, to make him uncomfortable. This is very offensive to American ears that feed poison to you about God just wanting you to be happy, healthy, wealthy, take, you know, God helps those who help themselves. God is completely sovereign over what worms attack. There's more. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a sign destined a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die. That's pretty intense, folks. That's hot. I mean, it's been hot recently, but I hope you haven't been like, kill me. This is so hot. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. God creates scorching hot desert winds, commands them, tells them where to blow. God rules the temperature of the air. God rules the atmosphere. It was God's sovereign will that caused these extreme weather conditions that made Jonah miserable. Can you see in the text that it was God's intent to make Jonah agonizingly hot? Jonah was faint because God was acting in his pain, in his suffering. The entire book of Job backs up this point. Now, why was God doing this? Now you got to go deep, my friends. You've got to think biblically here. God sovereignly works through pleasure and pain to expose our sin, teach us, and strengthen us so that we move closer to him, which is, when you add it all up, a great kindness of God. That he would do, go to those great lengths to pull us closer to him. And to be what we need, God's sovereignty was at work in the plant, in the worm, and in the scorching east wind so that Jonah's sin would be exposed, but also that God's sovereign grace and kindness would be known and experienced in a real way by Jonah. This is why I'm saying God is sovereign over everything, everything. God is sovereign over your pleasure and your pain. God is sovereign over your best days and your worst days, your successes and your failures, your obedience and your disobedience. He is working through it all to show you your weakness and to show you your great need of his great strength. And this biblical truth should give you joy and confidence in God. If God is not sovereign over everything, then my friends... Let me ask the question, who's in control? Who do we turn to? Who do we trust? Who do we cry out to for help? If God can't help us in certain things, why pray to him? You're wasting your time. But if he is sovereign and he can act in all things and he is in control, then according to his will and for his glory, we can pray and he acts. Who do we cry out to for help? Because a subordinate God in anything is not ultimately trustworthy in anything. Why cry out to God if there are limits on his power and grace and his reach? 
No, we cry out to God because he rules and reigns everything, everything, and can actually help us in everything. It was because of the sovereignty of God that Jonah and Nineveh were still alive. We need to hear this. God is sovereign over pleasure and pain. The shade of the plant was grace and kindness, and so was the scorching east wind. That was kindness, because both those things work to teach Jonah the compassion of God. Again, Dr. Phillips is helpful. He writes this, the outward circumstances of Jonah's experience were sovereignly appointed by God. You can see that right in the text. So it is in our circumstances. It is God who appoints the great fish that delivers us the shade that gives us comfort, and the worm and east winds that try our souls. The lesson is that it is always God with whom we have to do as he sovereignly appoints even the little details of our lives. Can you see the grace and kindness of God working in both your pleasure and your pain? Because let me just encourage you, he's there. He's there working. He has not forgotten. He is working out his purpose. He is working out his plan. He is working out all things for his ultimate glory and your greatest joy in him. His intent is to draw you to him, closer to him, to his heart of compassion. God might break your legs. So he can carry you and you can feel his power and his love. The point that God makes to Jonah at the end of this book is profound. It humbles us and it exalts God. Please don't miss the point. God's word exposes and convicts our hearts while revealing and exalting his heart. Now when I say God's word... I'm talking about God communicating his message to us. For Jonah, God spoke audibly to him because God had chosen him to be a prophet in a very unique way in history. For us today, God speaks to us through the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. That's how God gets his point across to you. In, in, a, in a loving and hopeful and promising way, God chose authors in history to write his inspired word so that we could read it in our own language years after. God has been gracious to you to give you his word. The Bible is God's authoritative word communicated to us. So if you want to hear God, you have to go to scripture or you're not going to hear him. God spoke to Jonah and exposed his sin and convicted his heart, but God did more. God graciously revealed and exalted his own heart to Jonah. Notice what God did for Jonah. And then, and then I want to show you how it applies to your life, starting in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes. That's honest. <laughs> yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Little melodramatic, I would say, for dear Jonah. Jonah really loved that plant. And when it died, he pitied it. He pitied the plant. He wanted it back for shade. He wanted the plant to live. He felt miserable because the plant that he loved so much died. And the sun and the wind were scorching. Nineveh was still alive and standing. His precious little plant was dead. 
And Jonah was so angry that he actually got snippy with God and again wanted to die. This is both comical and tragic at the same time. Verses 10 and 11 are where God lays it on to Jonah. God was kind to say this message to him and to set him straight because it exposed the sin in Jonah's heart and it convicted him, but it also displayed the superiority of God's heart. Listen, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah was angry that God didn't show mercy to the plant, and he was also really angry that God did show mercy to over 120,000 people and much cattle. Was Jonah some kind of radical activist with the Sierra Club? I mean, this guy loves plants. It's pretty bad to have more compassion for a plant than for people. Is that ringing a bell in America? Come on now. What about animal rights? I mean, Jonah was even ignoring animals here because that was why I think that little odd phrase was tacked on to the end. Not only the people, but also these living beasts. Plants. Are you kidding? Consume with pride and self-righteousness. Jonah questioned God's judgment. Jonah questioned God's sense of justice. So God put him in his place and exalted himself and justified himself. God showed Jonah the supremacy of his divine character, nature, and work. God handled Job in a similar way. Jonah pitied the plant. God pitied a pagan city. Jonah pitied a plant that directly benefited him, but which he did absolutely no work to labor for, to to make happen. God pitied rebellious sinners who hated him, yet whom he created in his image to worship and adore him. God is so good. God is infinitely good. God is infinitely better than you and me. Sin blinds us to clear reality. We lose our minds. We don't think straight. It clouds our thinking, and and we will not think or feel rightly until God's word pervades our minds and our hearts. God has something to say to us that will expose and convict our hearts while revealing and exalting himself to us. And we hear God's voice through the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. The the way to be a logical person, a reasonable person, a discerning person, a a rational and consistent and well-thinking person is to fill your mind and your heart with Bible, God's word. Otherwise, you'll be a fool. And do a little experiment. Study the the, the lives of the fools that you see around you. Study their life, and I guarantee you they know little of the Bible and how to apply it and what it actually means. The quickest way to be a fool, ignore God's word. Quickest way to be wise, study it and hide it in your heart. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, the Bible trains us how to think and how to feel and how to respond and how to choose and how to live. 
Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, the Bible helps us fight sin. Maybe the reason we're not storing up God's word in our heart is because we love our sin too much and we want to just keep going. Because when it's stored in our heart and when we, His Holy Spirit helps us apply it, we fight it. Jonah 4, verse 4, and the Lord said, verse 9, but God said to Jonah, verse 10, and the Lord said, God had something to say to Jonah, something to get through, and God has something to say to each one of you through Scripture. Right now, we're looking at Scripture, which has something to say to you. God is speaking to you through me, the mouthpiece of His Holy Scripture. God wants to expose to you your sin. God wants to convict you in your sin. And then he's introducing himself as the answer. So he is exalted. And as you get help, he gets glory. That's how this is working. He's revealing his greatness to you. Don't run away from the word of God. Don't run away from the presence of the Lord. And that's where the book ends. We don't know how Jonah responded. God just leaves us hanging. What did he do? What was his next step? Did he go back in the city? Hey, let's kill the vatted calf. I don't know what happened, which makes us think. So how does all this apply to you? And I want you to think about the entire series. What difference can Jonah make in our lives? What difference will it make to you Monday, tomorrow? Well, I hope this closing thought is helpful. God is sovereignly, graciously, and kindly pursuing you to do three things. Eradicate sin from you conform you to Christ, and produce fruit through your ministry. We're like Jonah. We're like Nineveh. Do you identify with them? I do. We deserve to be destroyed by God because of our sin. And that's not too radical to say that. You deserve to die. I hope you know that. You won't get God's grace until you know that. It's true. But... God is sovereign over everything and he's gracious and kind to pursue and save stubborn people like me and like you and then God uses his sinful but redeemed people, me and you, to reach the nations for his glory and for their greatest joy in him. God used a sinful and stubborn prophet to proclaim his message and hope to a pagan city which transformed tens of thousands of people God changed a city through Jonah, but there is something greater than Jonah that is here. God sent his only son to go into the city to be completely rejected, to be brutally murdered so that countless people could be spared from the wrath of God. Jonah hated Nineveh, and Jesus, oh Jesus, hanging on the cross said, Father, forgive them. Yes, Thank you, Jesus. Is Jesus reason enough? Take this to heart. Is he reason enough? Is what he has done great enough for you to repent of your sin, to believe in him, and then to show that you have repented and believed to give all of your life towards his mission in the world? Some people stop. They think, oh, I'm saved. Oh, I know Jesus. Church isn't that important to me. God's mission, not the evangelism. No, no, some people have that gift. I don't. I never talk about Jesus. Hmm. I think his grace produces fruit in our lives, doesn't it? I think that's what the Bible 
says, God is running after you as well, Jerusalem church. He has rescued you through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. God is sovereign over every detail of your life. He has been gracious to you and he will be gracious to you. He has been merciful to you and he will be merciful to you. He continues to chase and run after you. And God is graciously chasing after you to do three things. One, eradicate all sin from your life. He's coming to help you put sin to death. He's there. You're not doing it on your own. He's right there. He'll help you. He doesn't want you to perish in your sin. That's kind of him. God is graciously chasing you to, number two, conform you to the image of Jesus. Is there anything more precious than looking and living like Jesus? And that's what God is working to do by the Spirit in your life. Believe that. And don't forget that God is graciously chasing you to, number three, produce fruit through your ministry. You have a ministry. You have. You've been called to something. Are you being faithful in that ministry? Because if you trust God, he will work in you so that you're actually contributing to the mission of God in the world. You don't have to be perfect, but you do need to rise and you need to go. That doesn't even mean you leave Mannheim or Lidditz. It means you go wherever God calls you to go and you proclaim God there. God is showing you his sovereignty. God is showing you his grace, his kindness in the book of Jonah so that you can know him. So that you can know him, and that by knowing him, you can be like him. God can give you his heart, his heart of grace and mercy and compassion for others. You can be like him as he works his grace in you, and he can also motivate you to share Christ, to live for Christ, to contribute to the mission, so that other people encounter God through you. We have an opportunity to be Christ on Friday and Saturday. Before that, today too, I'm just saying, the Manheim Project, we can shine, folks. It's time to take Christ to these people and to show them his light. I think what motivates, last comment, stick with me, what motivates local, regional, national, and global missions is seeing the glory of God's sovereign grace. When that becomes most compelling to you, a heart for missions follows. Because you just love his grace. You want to see it. We are just as sinful um, as Jonah, just as sinful as Nineveh. We're just this little church that's been sustained for close to 300 years. And yet God can use us mightily if we work together to reach the nations for his glory and our greatest joy. God, I pray that you will give us a sense of your justice, a sense of your wrath, a sense of your grace, a sense of your mercy. I pray we don't cut certain parts of your character and nature and work off, but we can see the full scope in Scripture of who you really are and that that will impress us into obedience. God, work in our church Give us your heart of compassion for lost people. We will not do anything for your kingdom unless we see and know and experience the depth of your sovereign grace. So please give us more. Give us grace tomorrow and the next day and help us to see how amazing your grace is and that that would, that would motivate us to holiness Righteous living, 
saying no to that sin that keeps hanging on. That we would take, if it has to be a baby step, that we would take a baby step forward. Sustain us along the way. Help us to rejoice in your sovereign grace. We love you, God, and thank you for what Jonah has taught us. In Jesus' precious name.